In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungain, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. We've paused the podcast due to commitments linked to the war in Ukraine, but we have a special edition this week to assess the latest flare-up around the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yes, it hasn't gone away, you know. Next week, Boris Johnson will give a speech in which he'll promise to dismantle the protocol through UK legislation, unless the EU fundamentally changes it. It follows days of hardening rhetoric from London in the wake of last week's Northern Ireland Assembly elections in which Sinn Féin became the largest party and the DUP lost four seats. With the DUP saying it will not return to Stormont unless the protocol has been dealt with, even if that takes a string of elections, the temperature has reached boiling point and relations between Dublin, London and London and Brussels have sunk to even lower levels. We'll piece together all the latest developments with contributions from David Frost and Conor Burns in Washington, Geoffrey Donaldson and Simon Coveney in Belfast and Mara Shevchevic in Brussels and a couple of others as well. But first, Tony, it has been a while... Um, so mm. listeners will have to forgive us for being out of practice on this. How did we get to where we got today? Because things have been happening while we haven't been podcasting, but we have reached a crisis point. We're back to the bad old days as we stand today with the North's institutions not going to be brought back into operation due to a DUP boycott over the protocol. Yeah, so we, we are back in a crisis mode between Brussels and London and London and Dublin and we have a very bitter post-election scenario in Northern Ireland. Uh, How did we get here? Well, we'll recall that in the summer of last year, the UK issued a command paper spelling out how it would want to radically change the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, And in response, the EU said, well, we're not going to renegotiate the protocol, but let's see if we can find a way to bridge the gaps. And we have had quite a few uh, podcasts on the question of the EU's four proposals to try and bridge that gap. So they were on medicines. The EU changed its legislation, in fact, so that medicines could flow from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. They had a paper on customs, how to reduce the burden of customs checks and controls on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. Also on agri-food products, uh, SPS as we call it in the jargon, and also how to give Northern Ireland stakeholders and institutions more of a say in how the protocol is managed, uh, the so-called governance issue. Now, that, of course, is overshadowed by the UK demanding that the European Court of Justice be partially stripped out of the equation. So those those talks since last October had been ongoing. Maros Shevchevic, the chief negotiator on the EU side, had hoped that they would be concluded by Christmas. Uh, they weren't. It dragged into January, then February. In the meantime, Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, took over from David Frost as chief negotiator. Then, of course, in the meantime, 
the DUP pulled out of the Stormont executive, essentially more or less collapsing the institutions, leaving a caretaker structure in, in, in place. And then because the assembly elections were, were happening, the EU and the UK kind of slowed down the the technical talks that hadn't really been getting that far anywhere anyway. They had made some progress on the customs area. Um, the EU is still insisting that they, they they would radically reduce the, the burden of customs checks. The, the UK saying, well, it's not going far enough. Now that we've had the election on the 6th of May, 5th and 6th of May um, in Belfast, the the big story there, of course, was Sinn Féin getting the most seats, a hugely symbolic moment in Northern Ireland politics. But the other big story was that the DUP insisting that they would not go back into the executive until the protocol was dealt with. And the UK has kind of, kind of gone along with that idea. Uh, and we've had a drumbeat of uh, briefings from the UK side saying that the, they will bring in legislation that will effectively dismantle the uh, protocol. Uh, and we can hear now from Geoffrey Donaldson uh, speaking today, Friday, uh, about why they're not going to go back into Stormont and why they're not even going to agree to the uh, the election of a speaker uh, to the Northern Ireland Assembly, uh, which will be the first step in restoring the, the, the institutions. Whilst others sit on their hands, we are not prepared to do that. We need decisive action taken by the government. So the message we're sending today is that the choice is clear. If the European Union is serious about protecting the political institutions and the Belfast Agreement and its successor agreements, the basis of political progress and stability in Northern Ireland, then they know what they need to do. And equally, the same message is there for our own government as well. Uh, it has been almost two and a half years since uh, the parties gathered here and uh, reached an agreement, new decade, new approach. But I'm afraid it's the same old approach dithering and delay, talking with no action. And the government signed up to that agreement. And all of the signatories to that agreement recognized the commitment that was made to restore Northern Ireland's place within the UK internal market. We want to be dealing with the issues that matter to people, whether it is the cost of living crisis, harmed by the protocol, Prices driven up by the protocol. So this then, Tony, is the source of the crisis, this current crisis at the moment. The UK government can point to Geoffrey Donaldson's uh, objections to the protocol. They can say the institutions are not going to be got up and running again. If the institutions aren't functioning, then the Good Friday Agreement or the operation of the Good Friday Agreement is in danger. And as a result, in fact, it's the European approach that's endangering the Good Friday Agreement and not the UK's approach that's endangering the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, that, that's right, Colm. The, the, the UK has made itself the the, the, the sole moral guardian, if you like, of the Good Friday Agreement. And they've really claimed the high moral ground on this um, for, for quite a while now, saying that because the protocol is clearly rejected by one side of the community, then it de facto undermines the Good Friday Agreement. So unless you change it, then the Good Friday Agreement is at risk. Now, Liz Truss, in her statement after speaking to Maro Shevchevich earlier this week, uh, went as far as to say that the 
peace and internal security of the United Kingdom was at risk because of the situation in Northern Ireland and the UK would have no choice but to take its own unilateral action on the protocol. This this kind of sentiment goes down quite badly in Dublin and Brussels as you can imagine because Brexit itself didn't even have majority, uh, simple majority support in Northern Ireland, never mind cross-community support. And the protocol is really, as the EU would see it, damage limitation. It's the it's the it's the least worst outcome. Right. And also reminding the UK that well, you had a chance to make the protocol a lot less onerous by uh, agreeing to what Theresa May suggested, which was a UK-wide customs agreement. It wouldn't have a customs border down the Irish Sea, or you could enter a Swiss-style veterinary agreement with us, and again, you would do do away with all agri-food checks and controls, and yet you refuse to do that. So both sides are feeling aggrieved. There's a lot of harumphing and folding of arms, and the rhetoric has got quite intense. And we can hear now from the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, uh, on how he views the this current impasse and crisis with the EU and UK suddenly at daggers drawn again and the North's institutions simply not going to go ahead. Yes, there are issues that unionism has raised with us in respect of the protocol, but those issues should not prevent the establishment of the Assembly, the convening of the Assembly, the formation of an executive. And I have to say that the, you know, the European Union has been very flexible from the outset in relation to the protocol issue have engaged over quite a period of time now with the United Kingdom government and have advanced proposals and solutions, namely in the area of medicines, for example, in uh, SPS and in customs. Tony, in terms of the DUP having a say or this idea of cross-community consent on the protocol, I mean, the legal basis really isn't there for that, and that's just not my opinion. That's the opinion of Dr. Andrew McCormack, who wrote a paper for the Constitution Society. McCormack himself retired last year as Director General of International Relations for the Northern Ireland Executive Office, and he points to several pieces of legislation, uh, the Northern Ireland Act, the uh, Northern Ireland Constitution Act, the Northern Ireland Act that was passed in the aftermath of the Good Friday Agreement. It says, look, treaties are a competence of the UK government if they sign an international treaty the devolved institutions don't have any role in saying yay or nay to them. Yeah, and he actually amplified those arguments in a very long and very worthwhile interview he did with UK and Changing Europe, which is the UK government-funded think tank. They're doing a huge Brexit witness archive of long interviews with people who were in, in rooms and involved at various points along the way. And it's, it's really worth uh, reading Andrew McCormack's testimony. He's, as a former civil servant, he's, you know, he, he makes the point that he had to be strictly neutral in all of the meetings he had. And he was at the centre of a lot of the negotiations, and especially at a time when 2017, the Northern Ireland institutions were collapsed anyway, so he was not giving given any ministerial guidance, and yet he and other officials in the Northern Ireland civil service could see the impact that Brexit was going to have on the island of Ireland and on the uh, Northern Ireland peace process. Uh, so he was frantically trying to mitigate that, and often, according to his testimony, um, not getting much engagement from Whitehall or getting contradictory messages from UK ministers or getting the kind of mantra from Theresa May back in the day saying, of course, we're not going to have any hard border, but yet we're still going to leave the single market and customs union. Well, how are you going to do that? Uh, so he, he was very clear in this interview about 
being told explicitly by UK government officials after the protocol was signed in October 2019 that it did not breach the consent terms of the Good Friday Agreement. And on that very argument that you've quoted there, that that the Assembly did not have the competence. This was not a devolved matter, so therefore uh, it, it was in the within the writ of the UK government to sign an international treaty without needing to go back to have cross-community consent uh, from people in Northern Ireland. Right. Uh, at the same time, if the DUP continues to refuse to nominate a Deputy First Minister and the executive can't get back up and running again, there is going to be a crisis, not just a political crisis, but for people in the North, uh, an economic crisis. Business groups were out today saying that one of the biggest threats to Northern Ireland is, is not the operation of the protocol, which they believe can be worked on, and they've expressed their concerns to Mara Shevchevich for practical tweaks which might be implemented in order to get goods flowing from UK the UK into Northern Ireland. But the issue of investment, that, that long-term international investment into Northern Ireland, which could flow if they made full use of the protocol, isn't really going to be a realistic prospect if political instability in Northern Ireland continues to be a problem. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a real concern. And, you know, Mara Shevchevich has, has made that argument as well in the Irish government that all of this is hindering investment, all of this uncertainty, both inward investment and also what kind of investment companies in Northern Ireland make. Now, the counter argument there from the UK side is, look, it's cold comfort for you to say that, yes, we signed this and we knew what we were getting into. But the, the kind of raw reality on the ground is that the checks and controls, even with the UK, even with the EU's proposals, are still too onerous. They're still too much of a chill factor for companies in Great Britain who just see the cost and paperwork of trying to ship goods into Northern Ireland, especially agri-food products. So they're just not going to do it. Um, And yes, you can reduce the number of fields in a customs declaration and reduce the number of data lines, but still, if a, if a small or medium-sized company looks at that and says, well, to be honest, it's just not worth my while, then then you have a problem in Northern Ireland that people are going to be unhappy about. And then there's there's the, that, that practical and cost issue. But on the other issue, you've got the identity question and the fact that unionists feel because they can't get particular food products like Lincolnshire sausages or Cumberland pies or what have you, uh, then their identity is somehow... Um, traduced and not fully expressible. Um, so, so that that's the UK argument. Mm. And I mean, officials have been quite bullish in saying, you know, if the if the Commission doesn't like this, then tough. Um, but but you know, the UK government is responsible for the management of its own territory, and you know, the the Commission will just have to live with that and go back and give Mara Shevchevich uh, or get member states to give Mar- Mara Shevchevich a new mandate so that uh, he can uh, be a lot more flexible in uh, the kind of reducing the checks and controls that are there. Right. Okay. Well, we'll actually, we'll get to that argument uh, in a moment, but let's just hear from Mara Shevchuk on this because he believes that pragmatic solutions have been put forward by the EU, as you were saying earlier, but there's a clear exasperation in what he was saying at an event yesterday. Do you want to talk us through, firstly, what forum he was speaking in first and maybe just tee up what he had to say? 
Yeah, so yesterday was actually a quite an important day in, in Brexit land because it was the inaugural meeting of the EU-UK Parliamentary Partnership Assembly, which was created under the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. It's basically a forum for parliamentarians in Brussels and Strasbourg and London to to meet to you know keep links alive and to discuss problem areas to to pass resolutions and to try and restore the, a kind of a normal amicable relationship between uh, two sovereign powers um, but the entire meeting was overshadowed by the huge row because Liz Truss and Mara Shevchevich had spoken that morning and both of them had issued quite angry statements afterwards. Um, and so Michael Ellis, uh, MP, who was deputising essentially for Liz Truss on the British delegation, Liz Truss, Liz Truss was initially thought she to, to be uh, appearing. She was in a draft of the schedule on the 18th of April, but that draft was changed and then suddenly she was not there. Um, but he gave a effectively a, a repeat of the UK lines which are the protocol is not working the EU offer is not good enough and we will ha- we will have no choice but to take action uh, and uh, we have been tireless in trying to get a resolution to this uh, but Mara Shevchevich then in in for his part who was who was there uh, was exasperated and saying look you cannot blackmail us in this way we had a talks process that we were working on we have offered you time and again practical pragmatic solutions based on our conversations not with you guys in London but with stakeholders and businesses in Northern Ireland here's what he had to say and we implemented the proposal on on the supply of medicine when I was there I heard about the major issues from business community, for political representatives with whom I'm in regular contact, including with Sir Jeffrey, and with the civic society. They've been telling us in October last year, we need to fix the medicine issue. And I promise them I will do whatever it takes to make sure that every person in Northern Ireland would have the same medicine at the same time as any other citizen of the UK. We delivered. We changed our own rules. We changed our own legislation. And I said, We can do the same, we can work on customs procedures, we can work on SPS, but what we need in exchange is just to have the the, the minimal safeguards so we actually know what kind of goods are are, are coming to Northern Ireland. I I, I regret to tell you that until today we do not have the, uh, the, the access to the IT system as we need. We got it on papers, we got it like a couple of weeks ago, static data for which we cannot use our uh, assessment tools, so we don't know what is actually coming to Northern Ireland. But what we hear also in, in the Queen's speech and what we see in the, in the background document, there is a big plan for, for the major divergence from the former EU rules. And I just want to be uh, very, very open. You are the, the Parliamentary Assembly for the TCA. More divergence, more complications, more difficult threat. More checks would be, would be needed because there will need to be the, the compliance of the, of the, of the quality of the, uh, of the goods. So at, at this stage, what I would, what I would really plea here, we in, we in the European Union, we never work with threats, we never work with blackmail, we try to work with a constructive engagement. And this is what I'm pleading for. I'm appealing again through you, through Ms. Minister Ellis, Start negotiate with us because I think what we hear from the UK side is that whatever we bring to the table, not good enough. 
Just picking up on what Maraszewicz had to say there, Tony, there is obviously clear exasperation there with the another demand being made and another demand being made. But there seems to be some mystification on both the Irish and the EU part as to what the end point for the UK government is. And our colleague Sean Whelan caught up with Conor Burns, a UK MP close to Boris Johnson himself, a Catholic born in Belfast, but described himself as a, as a unionist. He caught up with him in Washington. He was, I suppose, in a way uh, over there to make contacts with uh, Irish America, perhaps, and other people on the Hill in order to explain to them the British government's point of view on this. Well, the key thing is we want to reach uh, a negotiated compromise with the EU. And essentially what we're saying is that when the protocol, as it is being applied, is not commanding the confidence of the majority of the unionist community, we've got to have some flexibility. And we've got to try and find a way where we can have a difference between the checks on goods coming into Northern Ireland from Great Britain that are destined to stay in Northern Ireland for sale and consumption in Northern Ireland and those goods that are coming in and coming through Northern Ireland onwards into the Republic of Ireland and therefore into the European single market. And we completely get and understand and accept the need to place checks to protect the integrity of the single market. But we think there is a way to do that without having the same rigour of checks on products that are destined for sale in Northern Ireland. Are you going to legislate to abrogate or suspend parts of the protocol or are you going to activate Article 16? No, we want, we want a negotiated solution with the EU and we will continue to engage. The challenge is that Vice President Sechevich is telling us that he is at the limit of the mandate that he has been given by Ursula von der Leyen. And we are asking the Europeans to look at the possibility of broadening uh, Vice President Sechevich's mandate to see if we can land a negotiated position. If it comes to the point where that is going to be impossible, then clearly we will have to take uh, decisions and actions to protect the peace, the power sharing, the institutions born out of the Good Friday Agreement. But we're not, we're not at that point yet. And that you would suggest would be some time away? I don't think we're putting any arbitrary deadlines on this. The deadlines in Northern Ireland tend not to make good bedfellows, but we want a resolution to it. We'd like it to be quick. We'd like the institutions up and running again in Northern Ireland, not least because of the massive challenges in Northern Ireland, as all other parts of United Kingdom, Republic of Ireland, indeed the Western world in terms of pressure of cost of living, uh, education, all the challenges that people want a government to deal with, which we can't deal with in Northern Ireland until there is a devolved government. Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney has been in Belfast today, Wednesday, talking to the parties up there, but he said he's not sure that the British government want to operate in a partnership with the Irish government. Uh, we'd like partnership on trying to resolve the outstanding issues on the protocol, uh, and we're hearing the British government talking about unilateral action and British legislation to override international law. Um, so, you know, the signals uh, are conflicting. Uh, um, what we want is partnership, friendship and how neighbours should behave with each other uh, to rebuild trust and try and solve some of these problems together. And I'm afraid that kind of partnership is absent at the moment on some of these really important issues. Well, we're very clear. We're co-guarantors of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement as amended at St Andrews with the Irish government. We both have a stake in seeing a stable, uh, prosperous Northern Ireland on the island of Ireland. We are absolutely committed to working with partners, including 
our friends and allies here in the United States to deliver for Northern Ireland, to deliver the stable power-sharing government envisaged in those agreements that have served Northern Ireland on the whole so well over the last 24 years and make sure that the prize of being able to celebrate a devolved Northern Ireland, attracting inward investment, jobs, prosperity, widening opportunity are in place and intact so that together we can all celebrate the 25th anniversary of creating an entirely different society in Northern Ireland next year. But it doesn't look good if the Irish minister is saying he's not sure that the British want to work with them. Well, you notice I'm deliberately not choosing to create a new set of uh, news headlines. We are absolutely passionately committed to doing all we can to working to restore the power-sharing institutions in Northern Ireland in the interests of the people of Northern Ireland, the people of Ireland and the people of our islands. The ask from the British government point of view seems to be not a defined point of what they would unpick about the protocol, but rather that issue you mentioned earlier of changing Maroshevchevich's mandate in order that negotiations would reopen between the European Union and the United Kingdom towards some as yet undefined end point that has something to do with the protocol to be confirmed. Yeah, the the question is, where does this go from here? Um, I mean, obviously, this has forced a a crisis uh, between London and Brussels and within the political parties in Northern Ireland, because clearly... Sinn Féin and other nationalist or pro-protocol parties in Northern Ireland feel that the DUP is holding everyone to ransom and the UK government is giving the DUP comfort and cover to do that. Um, the, the question is, what if the UK wants Mara Shevchevich's mandate to be changed, I mean, changed to what effect and, and to what extent? Um, now, I, I've been talking to UK officials who say they don't, really believe that this ask requires the protocol to be renegotiated, just that the laws that will apply to Northern Ireland, the state aid rules and the single market rules and the agri-food rules that will apply in Northern Ireland, be applied in a much more proportionate way, um, in a much more flexible way. So basically, the, the, the protocol sets out Articles 5 to 10 that's when, when you have goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain, EU law applies, and all that EU law is delineated in the annexes, especially Annex 2 of the protocol. So annex, these annexes carry signposts to all the vast array of EU single market and agri-food law. Um, now, it seems to me at a glance that if the UK wants essentially no checks on goods going from Great Britain to Northern Ireland if it's clear that those goods are staying in Northern Ireland and only checks on goods that are definitely going south. Uh, And this also applying to agri-food products because they're saying, look, Britain was part of the EU for years. Our food standards are as high as anyone's. Why not just recognise our food standards? I mean, to me, that is a massive ask for the European Union. And that would essentially strip out... um, the annexes or huge chunks of the annexes in the protocol if the EU was to agree to that. So what they seem to be saying is, well, we don't necessarily want you to strip out the annexes. We just want you to interpret EU law in a much more flexible way so that, you know, goods that are designated as not at risk don't get any checks. Um, And agri-food products are simply recognised as healthy because the the UK has high food standards. 
I mean, I mean, in a sense, this kind of gets us back to the kind of unicorn land and the magical thinking of 2017, 2018, when the EU said, look, we hear what you're saying, but, you know, you're, you're, the EU a- a- operates as a body of law. And when it comes to shif- shifting food across borders, member states only do that because everyone follows the same rules. Because mm. if people start dying because of a, f- a food scare, then we need to make sure that doesn't happen or, or that it, there's traceability and that there's monitoring and surveillance. And then, you know, someone can be taken to court if if there is a problem. So. I I don't I wonder if the UK government has thought through how if the U, if the EU does say okay well let's let's get back into the negotiating room and see if we can find any more flexibility, um, you know how far that process will get. But maybe um, the end game is just the negotiation. The longer you can keep negotiation going forward, the longer there's you have this idea that we had before of grace periods and everything else. And we're back to the whole facts on the ground issue. If yeah. there are grace periods, if there are suspensions, as long as the negotiations are going on and before final status has been reached, you know, we we wind up in a situation where it becomes something like the Middle East peace talks, where we never reach final status, but the principles of the negotiations remain, whether or not people are even talking to each other or not. Yeah, I mean, I, I was trying to get get an answer from a UK official about, well, you know, what what is the timeline here? Is it, you know, do you think if, if the talks magically are resuscitated and there there is a magical breakthrough, everybody, everyone's minds are focused because of this suspension of the institutions and, and the crisis do you think that things could be done by within the six month time frame that the assembly has in order to find uh, a to, to re-establish itself um and you know th- th- there wasn't really a clear answer you know maybe yeah well that that would be good but you know it depends on what the uk the eu is offering i mean i, I suppose it, it it this if this is a gun on the table that this is how the EU sees it. If this is a gun on the table, then the UK might simply be happy to leave it there and and let the clock run down in Belfast and then you have another mm. crisis because you have to have another election. Um, and then the question is, does the EU uh, retaliate? The, there's the question of whether the legislation that is announced actually becomes law. It, does it get through the House of Lords? All of these are you know, in 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 you know, variables that are hard to nail down, um, and ultimately the UK has made a risk calculation that, when it comes to it, the EU will not enter a trade war with the UK when it's so completely transfixed by. Uh-huh the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis and so on. And they may be right. The EU may not enter into a trade war with the UK, but what they might have is very targeted retaliation measures. And I was reading only an analysis of this the other day that would be specifically targeted at perhaps, you know, like the old Harley Davidson, uh, Jack Mm. Daniels whiskey type thing, where businesses would be picked out that are in key constituencies in the United Kingdom whereby they would hurt politically where they're meant to hurt in order to shift the thinking of the people who are making those decisions. So you wouldn't have an all-out trade war. You would have a graduated series of uh, retaliatory measures that would be put in place to hit particularly raw, sharp political nerves. Yes, I, I think I think that is very possible. Um, and the EU will certainly be thinking about that. I mean, remember when the EU threatened legal action 
and there there was an unofficial threat of suspending the trade and cooperation agreement altogether last autumn when it looked like the UK was about to trigger Article 16. Um, you know, this time around, it it may not go that far, but you know, the, the legal action that um, was hovering last year, I think the legal action initially was triggered by the unilateral suspend, uh, extension of grace periods. Um, that that legal action could be revived. Okay, the UK will say, well, you know, is that the best you can do? Um, but it does keep the issue alive and it does shine a spotlight on the UK's reliability as an international partner uh, when it comes to signing treaties and trade deals and so on. Um, but the, pro- the problem for the EU is... It is, it is a bit like the madman theory. The UK does something outrageous, then the EU has to respond in a way that doesn't make the situation worse um, and that doesn't make the EU look like the bad guys. Mm. Um, so some, somewhere within this whole kind of matrix of pressure and politics and reaction, both sides will have to get back to the table and try and figure a way out. Um, and the UK may find that this is a gambit that has paid off because the EU will suddenly find some extra concessions at the back of the sofa. Um, but will that be enough for Jeffrey Donaldson to say, OK, I've got rid mm. of the Irish Sea border. Uh, let's go back into Stormont. Well, and Simon Coveney speaking on the BBC's Radio 4 Today programme saying that, yes, there probably are adjustments that could be made and, yes, there are fixes that can be found but they can't be found until some point of an end zone can be found instead of concessions being wasted on people who just ask for more. And there was kind of obvious irritation, as we could hear from what Simon Coveney was saying in that clip I dropped in uh, to Sean Whelan's interview with Conor Burns, that feeling of, not to invoke the Middle East peace talks again, but we, we have no partner here. Yeah, I mean, I think that is that has long been the the real problem for... Irish and, and European uh, politicians that whenever the UK wants concessions and the EU is reluctant at first but then eventually they get concessions or grace periods then the UK simply puts them in the bank and then asks for more and we saw this particular in particular with David Frost I mean he seemed to have a particular knack of rubbing EU noses in it within hours of the EU saying, well, he, here are some ideas. And, and sometimes even you know, in advance of doing it, before Mara Shevchevich yeah. even had his, his proposals, four proposals yeah. published on how the, the protocol could be dealt with, yeah. David Frost was publishing anticip- anticipatory dismissal of yeah. or an in- anticipatory ratcheting up of UK demands, introducing the, the governance issue and the ECJ before the, the paper had even been written. Yeah, and and I suppose I suppose what what must kind of concern the Irish government is that the sort of rhetoric that we're hearing now from people like Liz Truss and her deputy who was in Brussels on Thursday, Michael Ellis, is somewhat reminiscent of some of the things David Frost has been saying, such as, yes, we're always going to need a treaty to manage the legacy of Brexit on the island of Ireland, uh, which you can infer means, yeah not the protocol um and david frost has been getting back to this idea of having checks near the irish border uh, not on the irish border so there is a kind of recidivism there that is creeping into some rhetoric from the uk side i mean the, the other point is that this will all feed back into uk domestic politics the house of lords is likely to take a very dim view of 
anything with, which breaches international law. Um, and, you know, there will be a lively debate, I think, within the Conservative Party as well, uh, among people who may be uncomfortable with this idea of the UK picking a fight with the EU at a time when Western unity and coherence is absolutely vital sure, uh, and with even, the war in Ukraine. And, and, and also in, in, in mentioning things like uh, agreements being signed with Finland and Sweden in that same context, you know, of, of trying to cross-bleed the issue of defence cooperation and an alliance with Europe into this issue of Brexit. And it is getting short shrift. Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, saying, look, you signed the deal, that's the deal, that's it only recently so the idea that sort of Europe is going to break on this it, it, it hasn't come true yet all the while though Tony from just going back to that what we mentioned there about I suppose it wouldn't be right to term it a charm offensive quite over in Washington that the UK government was engaged in Connor Burns sounding very emollient trying to say look I'm not going to get into a war of words with Simon Coveney on that it would seem he's there to make nice perhaps with the Irish American lobby and try and develop positive relations with people on the hill. David Frost was also in Washington and what it sounded what it sounded like when he was speaking to the Heritage Foundation was he was trying to provide ammunition to critics of the administration on the subject of its handling of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Let's hear what he had to say. I know the administration here is following this closely. I urge them to be cautious in what they say and what they do. Uh, Honestly, I'm not convinced the niceties of Northern Ireland are well understood by this administration. And I hope they will think hard before telling a friendly government how they must act to protect the unity and territorial integrity of their own country. I mean, those remarks by uh, David Frost, he, he is no longer a UK government minister. But as you say, what he says seems to come up in the speaking notes of UK government ministers or certainly people who are sent out to speak on their behalf, and he is widely regarded in the Conservative Party. Uh, this two-pronged approach, with a deniable proxy on one hand and an MP close to the Prime Minister on the other hand, how is that likely to go down in your analysis? Well, I'd, it, it's a quite a brave gambit, I think, to to go to Washington and then essentially insult the Biden administration to say they don't really understand the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, a, an, an interesting. Uh, element of Andrew McCormack's evidence to the Brexit uh, witness archive was that at the outset, the UK government, UK officials didn't have a good understanding of the Good Friday Agreement when Brexit happened. And they had to kind of be guided through it. And they had to look to see what the North-South cooperation thing was all about, because this was not something that most officials were uh, fully conversant with. So may I, I, I think David Frost is a kind of semi-official attack dog who's going out there with ever-hardening rhetoric to poke uh, at the uh, at the established orthodoxy in, in Brussels and in Washington. Uh, but there's no doubt that Joe Biden is very closely watching what has been happening on the protocol and has strong views on it. Now, again, I don't think he's going to want to let let rip um, shooting from the hip on this one at a time when Western unity is paramount. Um, but you know, don't don't forget that the UK, if it wants a trade agreement, it will have to get it through Congress, and that the mood in Congress is now obviously not uh, not very conducive to that. So, um, but I think in general, the UK 
certainly under Boris Johnson, feels that they can take a certain degree of risks with the Biden administration, kick over a few shrubs with the football and get away with it, um, and then hope that in the in the melee that quietly the EU will think, well, let's just, you know, go and find some more concessions and be done with this uh, because we, we need to focus on Ukraine. All right. Well, I suppose that's a good point to leave it here. Tony, uh, what's coming up in the coming week as far as you're concerned on this front? Well, the EU foreign ministers will be here in Brussels on Monday, so Simon Coveney will be at that. Um, I guess he'll be talking about um, Ukraine, but also I'm sure he'll be asked about the Northern Ireland Protocol. I, I guess the, the, the big question is now, what will Boris Johnson say next week? We're expecting a speech from Boris Johnson on Monday, uh, a speech from Liz Truss on Tuesday. Are they going to spell out exactly what they intend to do uh, with this legislation? Are they going to spell out the legislation? Uh, that's really what we'll see. I mean, the, the view here in Brussels has always been, well, let's see what they say before having a big reaction, which may play into Boris Johnson's hands. So all eyes will be on that uh, next week. All right. And the pressing issue on this island is, of course, coming up the uh, establishment of, of the Northern Ireland the Northern Ireland executive in 23 weeks time so yeah. don't hold your breath for that and uh, possibly an election in 23 weeks time we'll still be here okay that's a good point to leave it for me Colm O'Mungoyne RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin and for me RTE's Europe editor Tony Connolly in Brussels thanks for listening